Creative Collisions with Second Home. Hello and welcome to Creative Collisions, a new podcast from Second Home, a social business dedicated to promoting creativity and entrepreneurship in cities around the world. This series is made up of some of the brilliant talks we have at Second Home throughout the year. We've pulled a bunch of them together to give you new tools and ways of thinking and hopefully enhance your creativity. Hi, I'm Magdalena Morsi and I look after the cultural programme at Second Home. In this episode, we are celebrating the 100-year anniversary of the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. We are joined by the powerhouse literary couple, Michael Chabon and Ayelet Waterman. They are discussing their fantastic collection of essays, Fight of the Century, a bold and powerful homage to the incredible work this organisation has achieved across America. Michael and Ayelet are in conversation with Hector Viagra, the executive director of ACLU Southern California. This event was the first of many as part of our online global cultural programme series. For more information about what's coming up, go to www.secondhome.io. Enjoy listening. Thank you, Magdalena. It's such, such an honor to be here uh, and to be able to introduce these two wonderful people. Ilet Waldman is the best-selling author of A Really Good Day, the novels Love and Treasure, Red Hook Road, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, and Daughter's Keeper, as well as the essay collection Bad Mother, A Chronicle of Maternal Crimes, Minor Calamities, and Occasional Moments of Grace. She edited Inside This Place, Not Of It, Narratives from Women's Prisons, and Kingdom of Olives and Ash, Writers Confront the Occupation. Her books are published around the world. She wrote and executive produced Unbelievable on Netflix. And of course, Michael Chabon is the best-selling and Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the novels The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, Wonder Boys, The Amazing Adventures of Cal- Cavalier and Clay, a favorite of mine, Summerland, The Final Solution, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, Gentlemen of the Road, Telegraph Avenue, and Moonglow, the short story <laughs> collections, A Model World and Werewolves and Their Youth, and the essay collections, Maps and Legends, Manhood for Amateurs and Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces, as well as a collection of introductions and afterwards, bookends. He writes and produces for Star Trek Picard. Ilette and Michael are married and live in Berkeley, California with their children. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Oh, it's our pleasure. We're always happy to do anything we can for the ACLU. Thank you. Thank you. So for those who don't know, the, the book is a collection of essays about landmark ACLU cases. For those who, who may not have read it yet, how, how would you describe the concept behind it? Okay, I will. Um, So basically what happened was after Trump's election, when we were all so utterly traumatized, uh, I called up a good friend of mine at the ACLU who um, runs the Gay and Lesbian Rights Project. I know, who knew (laughs) that it could only get worse. Um, uh, And I said to him, he's my friend James Essex, we went to law school together. Um, We both were in Barack Obama's graduating class at Harvard Law School. Uh, And I said, James, what can two novelists do for the ACLU? Whatever it is, we're here for it. Do you want to mention what, what really pushed you even to do that? Wasn't it that remark of Anthony's? The- oh, yes. When Anthony um, said, Mara. when <laughs> the, um, the head of the ACLU nationwide, when he, the first thing you guys said after Trump's election was see you in court. 
Yeah. And we were so inspired by that. So um, James said, well, there actually is something you can do. You and Michael edited that book about Palestine um, and Israel, Kingdom of Olives and Ash, Writers Confront the Occupation. And um, do you want to do something like that for the ACLU? It's going to be our hundredth, our centennial anniversary. It would be great to have a book like that. And we immediately jumped on that. We reached out to 40 of our friends and wow. writers we admired, and everybody said yes. Um, some people didn't actually get the essays done, but the vast majority did. <laughs> and um, basically what we said was, okay, guys, we want you to write an essay inspired by one of these seminal ACLU cases. It doesn't have to be about the case. It just has to be the way that was something that the, that case inspires in you. So people wrote about all sorts of different things. I mean, some people really dug into the case, like George Saunders really dug into the case and wrote something really fascinating and personal and interesting that kind of was structured around the case. Other people wrote about personal things. Um, you know, Yagyasi wrote about growing up in um, Alabama, I believe, and the Pledge of Allegiance and what that meant to her. Um, you know, people, Jackie Woodson wrote about the Scottsboro Boys and in this po almost poetic essay that it's not so much about those boys, but it's about the boys um, and being an African-American boy. And, and Alexander Heyman yeah. is, um, is married to a black woman and he wrote about loving and that case, the personal significance of that case for him. <laughs> So they were the essays are wide and disparate and really fascinating. And these are like the best writers in America, Marlon James, um, Andrew Sean Greer, who won the Pulitzer recently, Geraldine Brooks, who won the Pulitzer, Jackie Woodson, National Book Award winner. Um, I mean, we just could go on and on. So many, Dave Edgar, so many amazing writers. Um, and it, you know, it's like, it's just a great collection to dip into it. It enhances your understanding, not just about what the ACLU does, but it really is a history of civil and human rights in America writ in, in these essays. So it's, I think it's great. We're really proud of it. How, how did you curate the cases? Did you decide which cases and then uh, assign them uh, out to authors or did you let no, no, them pick? We assembled the cases using it. The, so you guys kind of gave us this. We, I said, give me a list of every case that you feel like is important to the development and to the sort of the creation of the organization and its development and its thinking. And win or lose. Win or lose. Yeah. So um, we had this long list of cases, and I just sent it out to. We just sent it out to the um, to the writers, and we said, okay, first come, first served, and people just started snatching them up. And some writers, even when we asked them they knew right away which case. They, yeah. they already had a case of mine. Yeah. Um, like like Jackie said, I'll do it, but I have to write about the Scottsboro Boys. Mm -hmm. So we're like, great. Um, others had no idea and really needed to kind of comb over that list. And and, and there were, were there little there were explanatory summaries. So, so you could see, oh, that one's about freedom of speech or that one's about, um, uh, you know, uh, search and seizure law or whatever. And sometimes it is. it's not obvious what the case is about. Like, even if you read about it, you're, you don't necessarily understand the ramifications. So sometimes people worked with different ACLU lawyers at the organization to kind of figure out what does this case really mean? What is it? What are the, you know, like, for example, Ann Patchett wrote about this case that is about, um, limitations on travel within the United States. But like, what is that case really about? What does it mean? And it was a case about the state of California trying to keep Okies out of California. 
during the Dust Bowl. And it was it was this limitation on poor people specifically traveling. So she ended up writing, she dug into the facts of this case and she ended up writing this amazing essay about this family where this, you know, this brother-in-law, brother-in-law, brother-in-law. This brother of this woman was, um, you know, he had been financially devastated and his sister said, come, come to us. We'll take care of you. Come be with us while you get back on your feet. And so she sent her husband to pick him up in Texas and they were charged with this crime of bringing an indigent person into the state of California. So like, you know, when you look at that, you don't understand the real personal, personal ramifications of it necessarily. You don't understand like what this was really about. And um, so that her essay really illuminates that on a personal And also level. just by telling the story and telling it as effectively and vividly as she does, you she draws parallels, but you almost don't have to draw the parallel right. to the present moment that we're living in and the, the way that that case resonates right down to, to right now. Um, um, that basic freedom of movement. Drawing the connections, but right. it, it's, so, it's such a powerful case. And as soon as you... You might summarize it and say, oh, yeah, that's relevant to the, what we're doing right now. But when you start telling the story of the people that were involved in the case, it becomes even more powerful. And some of the cases are really recent. I mean, we talk about Rahul. There's a case um, uh, about the Guantanamo Bay and immigrants. And that case is, um, we have it chronologically. And there's there are plenty of very recent cases, you know, um, the case, legalizing gay, gay marriage. That was a case that the ACLU brought. My friend James was one of the attorneys on that case. And so we have, um, you know, the Windsor case, we we have a, uh, an essay about Edie Windsor and what that means and what being able to get married means for a gay person. So it really was, it, it's just, there's so, there's so much diversity, but like the, the, the thing that knits all of this together is what does it mean? I, I, I keep saying that the, this book is the most patriotic book out there. The ACLU is the most patriotic organization out there. Because what this organization does is holds America true to its promise. So this is a country born in slavery. This is a country that has tremendous injustice knit into its very fabric, the destruction of Native American culture and the genocide of of Native American peoples. But there is this document, this constitution, that can, at its best, if, if interpreted as it should be interpreted, be a you know, be a glorious document that inspires a glorious country. And if you are able to use it that way, if you are able to see the potential, then that is true patriotism. The the kind of narrow, constricted, evil construction of the Constitution, the narrow, constricted, evil construction of what it means to be an American, that's not patriotic. That's just toxic. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. <laughs> you know, those those words are there and we want to make them mean what they say, regardless of what the people who wrote them may have intended. Uh, you know, we know they betrayed them as they were writing them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm curious, <laughs> each of you submitted essays here. You know, how did you come to pick the the two cases that you wrote about? You should talk about Ulysses, the case and your process, because it's so much fun. Um, yeah, see <laughs> um, you know, obviously, Ulysses is, is one of my favorite novels. I've read it many times. And um, and up until about 1986, every edition of Ulysses published in the United States by Random House was published with 
Judge Woolsey's famous decision lifting the ban on importation of Ulysses into the United States right up front. So you open the book, the very first thing is not, you know, stately plump buck mulligan, but this court decision, this ruling. And um, the first time I read the book, I thought, well, what is this thing? And I read the ruling. And what you discover when you read that ruling is that it's fun to read. It's very well written. It's short. It's pithy. It's um, humorous. It's witty. It, clearly, the judge who wrote it understood the novel. He, he clearly read the novel. Um, and he has a, a literary opinion of the novel that he offers in the, in the context of this court decision. You know, how did you describe him, Michael, as a judge with literary pretensions? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I would just say this, the, the case is about, because uh, Ulysses was banned in the United States. Yeah. Just talk about, I will. Uh, okay, would you like to answer? No, 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 I think I maybe put it a little bit. So, um, you know, from that moment, I was always curious, like, what, what's the deal here? Like, why is this thing here? Who was this guy? What's the story? Why? No, there aren't any other books I've read that start out with a court ruling. Um, and every time I read the novel after that, I would always almost as a custom begin with reading this, this ruling. Um, so when we started to do this book and I, you know, I was kind of casting about looking for what I was going to write about. I don't remember if somebody suggested it to you or if you just thought no, of it, you, suggested it yeah, to me. Yeah, I suggested it to you. Because um, it turned out that um, the, the lawyer who handled this, the Ulysses case, who represented the publisher Random House, um, his name I'm just blanking on because I'm having a seat. Morris Ernst. Thank you, Morris Ernst. Um, uh, had been, a, if, not, he, he, if not a founding member of the ACLU, and there's a little bit of controversy around whether he was or wasn't a founding member. He was an early member of the ACLU, and he was a very active member of the ACLU. And um, he was a champion, certainly bef long before the ACLU. of Going so well. Oh, my God. Christian, we can hear you. Oh, <laughs> thank you, though. No, I appreciate it. Live feedback. It's going so well, dude. Keep it thank up. Thank you. Um, so um, I dug into that, decided to dig into it and kind of in a way solve the mystery for myself of what that, what that court ruling is doing there. What I discovered was a story of just a masterful feat of lawyering. Um, and really, the more I read about it, the more I came to see it, it was almost kind of like a a heist film, um, you know, where there's a mastermind um, thief who <laughs> sets everything up ahead of time, like you're lining up dominoes, and he he recruits the team. You know, he has a, a he he has a partner lawyer, and then they have a, a sort of semi confederate who works in the in the customs office. And he's this Morris Ernst. He had he was playing such a long game that he had set things up years ahead of time. He was sort of waiting for the perfect case, the perfect test case. He had been able to uh, manipulate a friend of his in Washington who actually wrote the laws that Congress passed, who literally wrote the texts of the laws to insert some language that said that the, um, I think it was a postmaster general maybe of the United States was able to give a case by case exemption of a particular novel. So even though the novel might be banned, one copy could be allowed to come in by the postmaster. He did all of this stuff in advance. Um, and then um, with that motivation, that strong motivation to support and uphold the First Amendment, but also with the strong motivation on behalf of 
Bennett Cerf, the uh, publisher of Random House, to make what they felt was going to be a huge amount of money if they could just make the novel Ulysses legal in the United States. There was this pent up demand for it. People were bringing copies in illegally in their luggage. Um, and which yeah, was I know it's the, hard to imagine in a world where like, both that, that Ulysses would be considered obscene, but that the reading public would be desperately trying to read this incredibly beautiful, complex. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people just thought it was a dirty book. And when they, <laughs> when they opened it up, they were always a little bit shocked to see that, you know. Probably it, disappointed. It's tough, yeah. <laughs> tough going. It's not like when we were kids and we would all pass around the exorcist. because Or those forever. Like, yeah, forever. <laughs> Everyone knew where those pages in The Godfather were. Um, it's not like that. But, um, you know, and they actually, Morrison used that whole, um, mechanism of illegal copies being smuggled in. That was part of his his scheme. Uh, and they, they enlisted a confederate who went to the one place in the world where you could legally purchase a copy of Ulysses, which was Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris. And, and he bought a copy and he put it in his trunk and he sailed to the United States and he went through customs down at the docks in Brooklyn. And, you know, he was waiting somewhat nervously, but it's all part of the plan. So they would open his luggage and seize the copy. And that was what was gonna trigger the, uh, the, the case. And the, the guy that was checking his luggage opened his trunk, he sees Ulysses right there on top and he's like, oh yeah, everybody brings that in. He closes the <laughs> sends him on his way. The guy doesn't know what to do. He sheepishly carries the book up to the Random House offices. He was like, here's the book you ordered. Like, we don't want the book. We, we have the book. <laughs> and then Morris Ernst himself takes the book and goes back down to the docks and, and like just buttonholes one customs guy after another until he finds somebody that will, is willing to seize <laughs> the copy of the novel. It was really fun to write about. It's a great story. Um, and it's, you know, it's also, it's an amazing document. So the answer then to the mystery was the reason that that court decision is up front in every copy, that was part of Morris Ernst's plan too, because he wanted to ensure that if anyone ever tried to challenge the legality of Ulysses to, to, to re-declare it obscene and ban it again, that court decision was automatically going to be part of the evidence in, in the case, because it's right there in the book itself. You know, I'm sure everybody hearing this story and reading it has the same reaction. I can't wait for George Clooney to grab this and give it the Ocean's Eleven treatment. We, 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 we're going to do it. We're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. It has Perfect. to be yes. Let's do it. Man. And I like you, you chose a case about involuntary commitment. Yes. So um, the case that I chose is called O'Connor versus Donaldson. It's a 1975 case. And this is the case that said, that you cannot hold a mentally ill person in permanent detention, essentially, in a hospital um, without determining that they're a danger to themselves or others. That it is, it is, um, you can't take away their freedom in that way. So um, the reason that I was attracted to this case is because I have a mood disorder. And um, I think that it is likely, though I function very well, that I've never been hospitalized and I, I take medication and it's controlled, but it, there's a, a strong possibility, certainly if I were, if I didn't have the privilege that I have now, that I would have been one of those people locked away forever in an institution. Um, the individual, Donaldson, who was locked away, I mean, there's no doubt he was mentally ill. He was bipolar. You can see it in his, he has these manic episodes where he writes these books. He had depressive episodes. But for, he was locked away for decades because he was, um, because really purely because of this one psychiatrist 
who felt like you needed to be there. And it was, it became this kind of personal vindictive uh, relationship. And um, finally, there, the ACLU took on this case and others and created um, this sort of structure in which, you know, nowadays you, you do something called 5150, you, you will have puts, you have to prove that someone is a danger to themselves or others. You have to reprove that if you're the state or you're the hospital or you're their individual family over and over again because people get better, people's moods get controlled, people's psychotic episodes get controlled. And um, it's a complicated case because um, it is what inspired the closing of institutions all over, this country, all over the country, which were by and large terrible places. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Titicut Follies, which was about an institution. Um, uh, it's just, they were, they can, could be, and often were just the most abusive and horrible places. And um, the idea was that they were going to close these institutions, the abusive art institutions, and create this mental health system within the community that would take care of people. Um, we didn't do the second part. We just sent everybody, I thank you, Ronald Reagan. We shoot everybody out into the streets. We closed these hospitals and we didn't bother to give people the care that they needed. And this is one of the reasons that you see mentally ill people on the street homeless because they don't have the capacity, the resources they need. And homelessness obviously makes people, it, it's terribly destructive to your mental health. So it was, an, it was a, a case born out of idealism and that did so much justice in the world. Um, but it's also sort of the quintessentially American story, which is only do a little, don't do enough, don't take care of people. Um, in a way, the nation and the government was as vindictive and callous as O'Connor, the doctor uh, who kept Donaldson incarcerated, because we decided, okay, fine, you don't have to stay in a hospital, but you, we're not going to get you. You have your liberty, but we don't give you the support we need to actually be a free person. So that's the case I wrote about, and my I knew from the beginning that that's one what I wanted to write about because of my personal connection to this to that um, to that law. It was, it was astonishing reading reading that essay. You know, you highlighted he was in commitment for more than a decade and a half, I think, and maybe saw a psychiatrist three times during yeah, that time period. Times. Nobody, That's... no treatment. And that was, that was the norm, you know, nobody got treatment to these hospitals. They were just, you know, just warehouses. There was no, there was not even an attempt to treatment that, and um, such treatment as there was, was often very cruel and, you know, they would send someone to this early form of, uh, uh, oh my God, now I'm having a senior moment. <laughs> electroshock. electroshock therapy. Electroshock. <laughs> ECT. ECT, which now has been like, you know, refined. developed and changed and refined so that it, it, it has, it's often very helpful. But by then it was just this cruel, torturous experience. So, uh, but therapy was just, eh, no you know It's funny though, I'm sitting here thinking maybe this is a false parallel, but you talk about this American tendency to, to just do the, the half part. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're talking right now about defunding the police. And that's a, that is also a two-part uh, solution in a sense, right? That we're, we're talking about not just 
defunding the police, but taking that money yes, and exactly. spending it on things somewhere like else. Exactly, bring mental health exactly. professionals to intervene in situations where someone is having that kind of a problem. It shouldn't be a police job. All these things that we're saying shouldn't be the jobs of the police. Let's take those jobs away from the police and do them. But but it's a little sobering to hear you, you know, to identify, to diagnose this blot and this this flaw in our culture that we don't follow through on the I know. That and that's what the most important thing about this is this moment in time. We need to make sure that we follow through. Exactly. That we don't just, you know. Defund the police doesn't just mean defund the police. Defund the police means um, take those billions and billions of dollars in every city um, and use them to support communities, use them to help communities. I mean, we just had an incident that, that I think is a great example of that here in our house a couple of days ago. Somebody knocked on the door, a young man. And he was disheveled, his clothes were dirty, he had a huge bump on his head, and he said, I need help. He couldn't remember his name, couldn't remember where he was. He was very agitated. He didn't know how he got here. So, you know, I had him sit down on the front porch, COVID, you know, I couldn't bring him into the house. He had a mask on. He had a mask on. And I I stood there and I thought, who am I going to call? You know, we don't... We don't have a number that's not a police number. You can't get an ambulance. He was quiet. He was entirely not dangerous. Uh, Frightened, scared. Not, not, no, no, no possibility of danger. So you can't call an ambulance. That's nine one one. That's a police call. I, I looked up. In the city of Berkeley, does have a mental health services team, but they don't open until eleven thirty in the morning. Because people don't ever have psychiatric crises before then or after 6 p.m. So eventually I called the police and I said, I don't want armed response. This is not a dangerous person. And the 911 operator said to me, you don't get to decide what our response is. (sighs) So then we were back to like, what do we do? What do we do? We tried to calm him down and we tried to do some deep breathing and tried to get to the, who was it? But what were we going to do? He obviously needed to be taken to the hospital. He had this head injury. So then I had to call 911 and I begged, it was a different 911 operator and they agreed that they would, she would inform the police that this wasn't a dangerous person and to respond accordingly. So we sat with them for quite a while. By the time, you know, the police officer arrived, it was about 15 minutes. We had like given him something to drink. We had given him a comfortable place to sit. We did you know, deep breathing to try to calm down. We were doing all sorts of like we mindfulness. Read we read He asked him. if we would read to him. So when Michael ended up reading in poetry, at one point he wrote happy poem on a card <laughs> because Michael, the poems, and we were like, I don't know any happy poems. <laughs> um, and the police officer, when she arrived, she took her cues from us. I mean, initially she was like, what's your name? But then she realized we were just like, calm down. Um, and the whole experience, and eventually the ambulance came and they took him away. And I, you know, I held his hand while we were putting him on the, um, just to keep him calm. But it, none of it needed to happen that way. And also, by the way, this is like uh, the reason that he wasn't killed, that we were taking seriously, that the police took their leads from us. Is, that is an expression and an, and an example of white privilege to its utmost. Because if we were black, if this were a different neighborhood, if he were black, if he were black, the response would have been totally different and is frequently is. I mean, how many cases do we know of parents who call for help because they have a child having a mental health crisis and the police show up and shoot them? Mm-hmm. So, um, but what we need 
is not a military armed police force that shows up with guns to an incident like that. The vast, vast, vast majority of police calls are more like this than they are like anything else. So, you know, I think there's a statistic that um, each individual police officer probably makes one, maybe two felony arrests a year. The vast majority of calls are calls like this one, mental health crises, uh, you know, other issues that are not, that do not require an armed response, a robbery that's already happened, a car theft that's already happened. So um, like if we took the majority of the police budget and directed it to things like mental health response, directed it to things like a domestic violence squad that was, you know, their domestic violence cases can, uh, calls can be very violent. So you have police backup um, to mm-hmm. something like that and, and allowed, you know, and a detective force that would solve, cause they all solve crime. 20% of rape cases get solved. And those are of the fraction, tiny fraction of rape cases that get reported. So maybe if they had a little more focus on actually here's the thing. solving crime. People in, in, is it O'Connor? Is that the case? I mean, back then there are probably people with lots of great plans too, for what to do exactly. with, with, the, with people. If you close the mental institutions, what should you do instead? How should we treat those people? And, and where did all those resources oh, go? Right. Yeah, so the yeah. follow through is, is the hard part. And yeah, so it's, it's not just an American trait. Follow through is hard for human beings in general. And now we all start out with big, grandiose plans, and it's hard for us to follow through on them. It takes extra effort, it takes commitment, it takes leadership too. Leadership. And, um, you know, so. We can try, I'll try to do what we can and we, and we can, some of us are qualified to be leaders, um, but it's, you know, we just got to make sure once all the sort of showy parts of it are done, that the hard work of it, the legislation, yeah, once the, the kind budgeting, of, all that kind of stuff. Once the kind of like, you know, whatever, target putting up Black Lives Matter boxes on Twitter, once all those corporations, once all those entities have stopped claiming mm-hmm. their commitment mm-hmm. to ending white supremacy mm-hmm. and ending this militarized police state in which um, a large portion of our population lives, um, that there actually is work on the part of leadership. I mean, and that's one of the reasons we need to elect, you know, people of color to positions of authority in this country, mm-hmm. because a uh, you know a black legislator who has a, a personal experience of this kind of response of what it means to be black in America, what it means to exist in a country that has refused and refused to um, abandon its commitment to slavery and the vestiges of slavery. That person, I trust that person. We can all trust that person more to to have that commitment. But then you know, like, mm-hmm, but this is a country where we elected let Donald Trump, Trump and we let men write abortion laws. I mean, so yeah. it's not, we don't have a great track record of many people who actually know. So are we moving? Is that what we're building up <laughs> well, here? Yeah. I see we have people from Lisbon. And- I know. You know I, I should you. say, on the, in terms of voting, I think it's critical that people understand that you have to vote for president, you have to vote for Congress, but you have to vote all the way down your ballot. Right. I mean, oh. I think what this moment is showing us is how important uh, your sheriff is or your police chief. Mm-hmm. You know, they decide how police officers are trained. They decide when a police officer has acted out of policy, when they should be disciplined, how they should be disciplined. Your district attorney decides which of these officers to charge, what right. to charge them for, how vigorously to prosecute. 
Um, and these are things that can only be addressed when people make their voices heard in the ballot box. Um, so we're urging people to, you know, vote at the top, but go all the way down the ticket, all the way down to dog catcher. Mm -hmm. All those positions have an impact on your life. Um, Hector, do you have a sense, and you do voting rights work, do you have a sense of what this election, I mean, you know, we're all afraid, you know, every time the monster in chief goes on and tries to, um, you know, set the stage for refusing to leave the White House when he's voted out. Do you have a sense of what the vote by mail is going to be like? What the election, we've seen these catastrophes in state after state, you know, people waiting on, people pounding on the windows of the polling place in Kentucky, people waiting online, you know, in, in Georgia for hours, people waiting online at the height of um, COVID spread in uh, Milwaukee. What do you think is gonna happen? This, this is such a critical issue, and it's going to be a tooth and nail fight from now until Election Day. Uh, you know, for those of us who live in states where we have broad access to vote by mail, it's unimaginable what other people are going through around the country. So I think about 29 states have broad access to vote by mail. But the other 21 and D.C. have very limited and restrictive uh, laws on voting by mail you have to essentially claim a specific excuse that allows you to vote by mail. If you can't claim that excuse, you're not allowed. Hmm. Um, and essentially what's happening is if these laws are not loosened up, people are gonna be forced to choose between voting um, and their health or possibly their, their life uh, given the pandemic. Um, and so the answer here clearly is to make universal access to vote by mail available. Um, but it is being fought right now uh, in litigation. I think the ACLU is in about nine or 10 cases um, on this precise issue. And we've had victories in the primaries to okay. allow people to use the pandemic as an excuse to um, seek to vote by mail. We're trying to make sure that those rulings remain in place through the general election uh, to allow people to vote by mail. Uh, but it's really difficult. Um, and some of these laws, you can't imagine just how restrictive they are. I think it's Virginia where they say that you need a witness who has to uh, attest to seeing you open the ballot, fill it out and sign it. Uh, you know, in the midst of this pandemic, you know, you're living alone. You're supposed to bring a neighbor into your house uh, and risk exposure uh, for the two of you just to comply with this. It's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. That's so um, and it's all the more reason why we need to continue to support the ACLU, ACLU and, and not just in, in that work, but in all the work they do, but especially right now, what we're looking at, that sounds incredibly urgent. It is, and these are, these are key states, you know, Virginia, Texas, South Carolina, uh, these are among the states that have these restrictive laws, and you have the president who's, you know, alleging voter fraud, uh, you know, before the election has happened, you know, he's, he's challenging the use of vote by mail. He commits voter fraud himself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and he's, and he's, you know, threatening to, you know, essentially defund the postal service, you know, which is an attack on the vote by mail. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, this is, this is a fevered pitch battle right now where you have an attempt to essentially decide who the electorate is. Um, and uh, and that, that clear. Trump has been clear. The Republicans are clear. The 
they lose if people vote because the country as a whole, look, there's a crazy 40%, and I'm happy to say deplorable, 40% of this country, 41%, 42% are loathsome, awful people who vote for Trump. I'm sorry. You vote for Trump, you're a scumbag. Um, that's not the ACLU's position necessarily, but it is Ayala Wallman's <laughs> position. Um, and, uh, but that's, the rest of us are not like that. And they know if we vote, they will lose. Even in a country that gives, you know, North Dakota two senators and gives California, there's 17 people living in North Dakota and they each, you know, they each have a, a third of a senator. And in California, where we're one of the biggest countries in the world, we don't have, you know, we share these two senators. So, but even under those circumstances, they would lose if people voted. So Hector, what can we do? What can the people who are listening to this do? What can we do to try to um, help register voters, help registered voters vote, help increase turnout, help increase registration now with, you know, a few months to spare. And a pandemic. And a pandemic. It is, it is so difficult um, because there's so much urgency uh, and it's on so many fronts right now. Um, you know, obviously we, we've talked a lot about police violence and police brutality. Um, I think it's clear that people have to maintain the sense of urgency around that issue right now. You know, police reform is sort of like gun control. Generally, two thirds, three quarters of the population support it. But the intensity is not great enough to actually push elected officials to get anything done. A small percentage of people who intensely oppose reform prevent any of it from happening. Um, so the intensity that people are feeling now, they have to maintain it. Um, and so, you know, people, if they can, if they feel comfortable doing so, need to protest. They need to be supporting, you know, Black-led um, and impacted organizations um, that are crying out for justice right now. Um, supporting them, um, not just in action by, by demonstrating with them, um, but also uh, supporting them financially. Um, it's critical that these organizations have the funding they need. Um, you know, you've, all, you've touched on a number of reforms that are critical right now. Um, making sure that the police are not the ones that respond to mental health situations. Here in California, we have something called the Crises Act that we're supporting that would deploy teams of mental health professionals to deal with these situations instead of police officers. Um, you know, in California, we passed legislation last year. It was a difficult, difficult fight against the police lobby um, to change the standard for use of force in California. You know, th this is a story I think that you all can appreciate because this detail is just so amazing. The use of force standard in California had not been amended since 1872. 1872. So an officer could use force, including deadly force, if they thought it was reasonable. His six shooter. We wanted to change that standard to necessity. Um, right. You know, mm. all other options have been exhausted, de-escalation, you know, non-lethal options, all of it uh, before you can get to, to do that. We've got to make sure now that that law gets implemented. You know, you talked a lot about follow through. We need to make sure that officers are trained in the difference between reasonableness and necessity, that departments are holding them accountable for that different standard, that DAs are charging officers when they use force that is not necessary. Um, these, are, these, are, these are really, really critical issues. 
people are talking a lot about police decertification. You know, we license all kinds of professions in this country, doctors, lawyers. There could be a license for police officers. Manicurists. Manicurists, yes. And if they engage in a particular form of misconduct, their license can be revoked and their ability to move from one department to another uh, can can be ended. Mm. Those are those are critical things. You know, you've talked about defunding police. Obviously, that's a critical part of this, too. Um, In terms of voting, you know, it's so difficult. It's so difficult because you've got states uh, that are controlled uh, by folks who are fighting to stop um, people from having broad access to the right to vote. Um, so I, I think we've got to drown those people with emails and faxes and phone calls. They've got to understand exactly what the level of backlash is going to be for them doing this. Um, and we've got to help our neighbors. You know, we've got to educate them on what their right to vote is, how to do it. You know, a lot of folks are not familiar with vote by mail. Um, they haven't done it in the past. So if we're going to make universal access available because of the pandemic, we also need the follow through of education campaigns so people know exactly how to fill it out, when they have to submit it, you know, when it's due. Those kinds of campaigns in languages that people can understand are critical right now. So, uh, Hector, how can we do that? How can we um, how can we help participate in those education campaigns? Our postcarding, writing, calling. What can we do? What are what are some ways that we can get access to those uh, forms of participation? You know, on on the ACLU website, uh, whether the national website, ACLU.org, or in your specific state, you can look up uh, your local affiliate of the ACLU. There will be information on the the right to vote by mail. Um, And you can use that, you know, use it on social media, email friends, uh, you know, talk to your neighbors. uh, Let them know how this right can be effectuated uh, in the midst of this pandemic. Um, you know, if if they have a valid excuse to explain to them, you know, that they have one that they can use right now, uh, e- even if it's not the pandemic, um, it's critical that people understand their rights. We, we often emphasize this, you know, as much as the ACLU is known for its litigation, you know, it's our calling card, but we have always engaged in lobbying uh, at the federal and state level. And we've always engaged in community education, because if you don't know your rights, they're meaningless to you. Um, so helping people understand how they can vote by mail is, is really critical. And I know there's some organizations that are, um, are, are carrying out like postcarding campaigns and letter writing campaigns. I was doing some postcarding. I did a bunch. Um, that's how we celebrated my birthday a little while ago. We just had a big postcarding party back when you could have a postcarding party. Um, and uh, I know that um, there are local ones. So if you're in a, anybody who's on this call is in an area that they or or wants to do that kind of postcarding or calling, just reach out to me over email. It's just Ayala at Waldman at Gmail, and I will connect you to someplace where you can start postcarding or you can start calling. Fantastic, fantastic. You know, some somebody in the in the Q and A has asked a, a question. We can turn things back to the book. You know, one of the things I was curious about is, you know, you you went into this with with a deep understanding uh, of the ACLU. Did your perspective of the ACLU change after you put the book together and read these various essays? Well, I mean, I, I um, for me, I think the I the 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 role of the lawyers 
in all of these cases. I mean, I, I was, I was a, in, in the most famous cases, um, the best known cases, you, you know, I think the focus tends to be on the facts of the case a lot of the time. And, and sometimes you might know something about the narrative of the person involved in the case one way or another, like in the case of Loving, they even made a movie about the people in Loving. Um, but the, the amount of, and you could see it in the Ulysses case, and I could see it when reading essays by the other writers as they turn them in, the amount of planning and preparation and foresight and sort of, and patience and waiting. And, and, and so many times, you know, the ACLU will have and continues to sort of identify the issue. They know they, know they, they want to get the, the law changed or the interpretation changed, but they're sort of looking for the, the perfect case, the case that has the best shot for whatever reason. And um, just over and over again, and, and definitely in the case of Morris Ernst, um, that the, 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 the calculation and the um, skill and finesse and, um, you know, the, the cleverness, I would say, almost, of, the, of the, the practice of law over the course of the past 100 years in order to accomplish the, you know, to be, to be using the law and to be acting as the lawyers um, for the, for the cause of the law itself, for upholding the law and for, um, for holding the, the law to the, what it says it's all about and not just sort of um, the sort of of the moment interpretations often by frightened people with lots of prejudice and bias. So, you know, I think that's what I came away with this, with a strong impression. Yes, a lot of times you're also struck by the heroism of the individuals whose cases are being brought, or who's you know who are who's who are um, have been horribly uh, persecuted by government and so on. Um, that's very prominent as well. But I think that's the thing that just really increased my appreciation for the incredible skill as the lawyers at the craft of practicing law. And you know. Michael and I both, uh, I, we, we, as we write in our introduction, the ACLU came onto our radar screen when we were kids. Our parents were both progressive. They were both, you know, what we called liberal back then. They were, mine were members of the ACLU. I think yours were too. Um, and um, uh, we remember that when the Skokie incident happened, this is when Nazis were marching through this Jewish uh, town, this town that was burned, had a large Jewish population and a large population of Holocaust survivors, specifically the American Nazi party or whatever it was called at the time, marched through Skokie and they sought a permit and the ACLU represented them in seeking their permit. And we were both, we were the kids and we were like, wait, what? We, the ACLU is good. Nazis are bad. Well, we used to think Nazis were bad in this country. We did have a consensus at some point that it was bad to be a Nazi, <laughs> that you were not a very good people. Um, and, but very you know, fine people, very fine people. Mm-hmm. And we, we, it, it, that was the moment where we understood what free speech means that, that to um, defend the rights of those who are traditionally excluded from speech, you have to defend the rights of everybody's speech. And it really was kind of a watershed moment in our thinking about what um, civil liberties mean. And, um, and to understand sort of that, that, commitment uh, sort of changed the way we both thought. And it was part of our maturity and our, you know, intellectual maturity. 
Um, and then one of the essays in the book is an essay by Scott Turow. And when we reached out to Scott, he's like, I have a bone to pick with the ACLU. And we were totally stoked. Um, and Anthony Romero and David Cole, who are, uh, David Cole, who I think is, I don't know his title now, is he director? Legal director. Legal director for the ACLU. They were thrilled to have this essay in the book. It's very critical of the ACLU. And it's based on the ACLU's position that ultimately led up to Citizens United, which is this idea that... Um, that sort of there are two things that led to Citizens United. One is the notion that um, that money in politics is a form of speech, that giving money is a way that you speak. So the ACLU has taken that position that money is speech. And the other position that's necessary to get to the point of Citizens United is that corporations are individuals and have rights of free speech. And, and Thoreau points out really nicely that if um, you, those two concepts together, you get a situation where people and corporations can bribe their, any, any, any political um, uh, candidate they want. And if we think that candidates who receive, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from the Koch brothers or from the NRA or from police unions are not influenced by that money, then we're delusional. So, um, and I was really well convinced by, uh, by, um, Scott Turow. So um, it was apparently very much in keeping with the sort of general ethos at the ACLU because we, we were told, we've been told a couple of times now by different people at the ACLU that, you know, that they say, if you uh, disagree with the ACLU positions 50% of the time, you, you must be a member. And if you disagree with their positions 75% of the time, you must be on the board. So <laughs> that notion of dissent um, is, is, you know, it's a sacred notion to it's us. It's sacred. Absolutely. Yeah. And the ACLU embodies that. And so it actually seemed important to have Scott Turow, you know, because all of the other essays probably, you know, naturally and somewhat inevitably uh, champion and, and the, the, the ACLU comes off as they generally deserve to come off as champions of, of the Bill of Rights and the and Constitution. Um, and in this one essay with Scott, where Scott Turow brilliantly sort of skewers the whole the whole ACLU position on, on Vallejo and yeah. Buckley versus Vallejo, um, you know, that's dissent. And it seemed like that was, it wouldn't have been a book about the ACLU without that piece. Exactly and right. I think if you want to understand what happened in Skokie and to understand the history of that case, um, Moriel Rothman Zecher, who is an amazing writer, he's a young writer who was chosen by the National Book Foundation is one of the five writers under 35 to pay attention to in America. He wrote this beautiful essay about those that series of cases and about Ohio and about, um, it's a very personal essay about being um, a young man, a young Jewish man growing up in Ohio in the context of those cases. So definitely check out that one. Um, uh, I'm actually looking, so we have only, what time are we going to, Hector? Looks like about five minutes left. Should we... Um, yep. I'm sort of looking in the um, questions and um, uh, just to say to people, I wrote I, in the chat, I wrote a number of couple of organizations um, that you can reach out to if you want to do postcarding. And I'll also um, put my email address in case you want to reach out to me to get more direction on that. Perfect. What else can we talk about, Hector? You know, somebody in the, in the chat asked a question about complacency. Um, you know, the feeling that uh, the polls are showing that Trump is going to lose. And so mm -hmm. 
Do people really need to go out and make an effort to oh vote? Oh my God. The polls were showing that Trump was going to lose last time. The polls were showing a wipe out. Here's right. a story. The day of the election, I called David Pluff's wife. Remember David Pluff, the architect of Obama's victory? I called his wife and I said, are we going to be okay? Because I was pessimistic the whole time. And she said, don't worry, we have a fridge full of champagne and orange crush. And then I was like, we're going to be fine. Pluff knows everything. We're going to be fine. <laughs> so there is no we're going to be fine. As long as 50% of this idiotic country actually believes that he's strong on the economy, despite the fact that he's freaking wiped out the economy and that all he ever did was skate on Obama's um, economic success for the first few years of his presidency as long as that is true we are not and as long as they're successful in their voter suppression campaigns which they are all over the country we are going to lose unless we are like you said active every second of every day until this happens Uh, and what has been done since 2016 to prevent the kind of interference by foreign powers that we saw in in the election 2016 nothing in fact, they're more active. We haven't even really fully acknowledged that it happened. Yep. Yeah. And complacency, I think it's easy enough to see, is what got us in this mess in the first place. And it's complacency at a writ large, that the assumption that things will just get better on their own, that, that the trend line is good and it's going to continue, mm-hmm. we can't ever make that assumption. You know, one of, the, one of the tenets at the ACLU is that no victory ever stays won. Every generation has to fight these same battles and reaffirm the commitment to equality, to liberty, to justice. Uh, and what we've seen is we didn't, we didn't live up to that challenge, and this is where we are now. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, really good point, Hector. And, that you, and I experienced that reading through the cases in this book that are presented in chronological order um, is you know, you're so you're starting out in the 1920s and coming forward and you just keep thinking, yes, the circumstances were different. The population group that's being persecuted might have been different. The, um, but you just keep thinking, oh my God, this that's just like now, or that's just like five years ago, or that, that case, this case from 1940, uh, the internment, you know, and this came up a lot when, when, when we when we were focusing as we needed to be focusing on what's going on down at the border, which we, we haven't even talked about, and I gather from from that that's a particular area of interest for you from the uh, award that you were um, given, that we, you know, <laughs> that's all still there. We haven't done anything about that. But 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 during as the camps were being constructed, we started hearing about the uh, what's it the case the Koromatsu, Koromatsu ruling Koromatsu. and. Um, you know, it, you're, it's absolutely true. It just never, we never win. You know, we, we, we have moments of victory and then they, fight, they, whoever they happen to be at any given moment, figure out another way to try to circumvent it, get around it, suppress it, take it away. And, and the fight starts all over again. And, you know, that quote, that famous quote of, of Dr. King's about the moral arc of the universe bending toward justice. I, 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 I was stirred and moved by those words when I first heard them as a child. I'm stirred and moved by them every time I have heard them ever since. It's a beautiful um, idea. Sometimes when you read the history of this country, and in fact, when you look at the history of the whole world, a lot of times it seems like sometimes the moral arc of the universe gets severely bent in the other direction. 
Um, and it takes, it might take a long time to even get back to where you were before that started. And it takes us, our active participation in bending it faster towards justice. You know, we should pound on that arc, jump exactly. on it, hit it, bend it. it uh, that's, bend on it. that's what you do, Hector. And that's why we did this book, because the ACLU does that every minute of every day. And mm-hmm. there's never a moment of complacency. And there's never a moment of lifting the pedal off the gas. And we are so grateful. We are grateful to have had this opportunity to do this book, to celebrate you. We're grateful for being in a country where you exist. We're grateful for, um, we, I believe, Michael and I believe that were it not for the ACLU, we would be as a nation in even worse straits. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for keeping doing it. And we will always be here supporting you. Always. Thank you both so much. You know, it, it's it's incredible to read about the founders of the ACLU in 1920 creating this organization. You know, I could seat them all at my dinner table. It was a very <laughs> small group. And they dreamed the biggest dream, you know, that you could create an organization that would hold this country accountable to its promises on civil liberties and civil rights. There was no reason to believe that that vision could ever become reality. No reason at all. I mean, you look at the state of the country in 1920, you know, everything that we're fighting about was was lawful and open, you know, lynchings, mm-hmm. gender discrimination, you know, LGBT issues weren't even on the radar. And yet they I- believed that that was possible. And now we find ourselves 100 years later, you know, we have a staff of, I think it's 14, 1500 across the country, offices in every state. We've got a membership of 1.6 million, I think, and we've got supporters of about 4 million. Um, and what you see is that the engine of all of this is people who believe in those promises coming together can really make a fundamental difference. Um, and, and, and as we know, it's the only thing that ever has worked and it's the only thing that will ever continue to work. So yeah. thank you both for highlighting the work of the ACLU. Thank you both for sharing your talent and your time the way you have can't tell you how much I appreciate it. In the in the chat, I saw one thing, and just to make sure I let, you know, the organizations that you referred to, if you could respond to panelists and all attendees to make sure that they get oh, the list okay. of uh, organizations and your email, uh, I think okay. people will greatly appreciate it. Thank you, all of you out there for, for joining us today, and onward. This episode was brought to you by Second Home as part of our Creative Collisions podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up.